0: This is The Jewish Executive Project, a podcast that interviews inspiring and accomplished leaders in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Join veteran international businessman Mike Aaron and performance and leadership coach Rabbi Jacob Rupp, the executive director of H-Minnesota, as they discuss what it means to lead through the lens of Jewish values gentlemen, I am thrilled to welcome along with Mike Howard Bahar, who is a world-renowned speaker, author, and advisor who led Starbucks for 21 years as the president of North America and the founding president of Starbucks International. Um, He has been in business for over five decades and is a pioneer for servant leadership and conscientious capitalism, um, of which he explains a lot about what that means, why that impacts the world to make it better, and how it impacts and, and increases company's bottom line. Um, a ton here, he has over 200 quotes that, and he doesn't share all of them, but uh, that he has used in his life to help people. We speak about developing a personal mission, um, how to motivate people, how to motivate yourself, cancel culture, there's a ton here. So I encourage you to sit back and to relax and to enjoy, uh, to take some notes. And uh, with no further ado, Howard Bahar.
1: Well, um, Howard, it's a real pleasure to uh, have an opportunity to speak with you directly. I've read parts of your book and I've uh, heard some of your other podcasts. And um, I tend not to be a very, um, I tend not to follow a traditional line of discussions in the podcast because I like to learn. I like to learn as much as I can from young people, from people older than me. And therefore, I think that all these sort of uh, questions that are uh, um, have been pre-rehearsed and uh, canned questions don't teach me very much. Yeah. So I know one of the things that you're very proud of and that I thoroughly enjoyed hearing once before are your six Ps,
2: the Ps right. by which
1: you uh, live your life. Right. And I'd love to hear more about those. And then once we finish with that side, your book, Servant Leadership, etc. I think that a few years ago, they had a different connotation than in today's world, where it's yeah. beginning to try and understand who the servant is and who the leaders are, which uh, <laughs> become quite confusing to me. But how about tell us a little bit about your six Ps? Because I have um, my five family principles as well, which I also try and live by. But I'd love to hear yours and then uh, mention, discuss mine a little bit and, and the synergies.
2: Yeah, well, I, I have this document. I'll show it to you. It's, uh, it's This is Howard in 50 words or less. And I've had it. I've had it. Uh, this document has changed over time uh, for 45 years. And it kind of guides my life. And on it has my personal mission statement, it has my core values, and it has my six Ps, which you asked about. So the would first you page,
1: read, Would you read the whole document for sure, us? Sure,
2: sure. Yeah, well, we'll start with my mission. My mission is to every day I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit, beginning with myself first and then for others. And the reason why I say self first is what I've learned in life after living as long as I have, that if you're not okay with you, it's very difficult to help somebody else. No doubt. So then my core values, the first one is honesty. The second one is fairness. The third one is respect for self and others. The fourth one is responsibility. The fifth one is integrity. The sixth one is trust in self and others. The sixth one is caring, and the seventh one is love.
1: Can and you stand, all have... can you stand on the difference between uh, honesty and integrity? Uh,
2: yes. Honesty, I- integrity is more um, that you can depend that I'm going to live up to the things that I tell you. It's, it's it, right, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And you can always depend I'm going to do it. Honesty is just that, that I'm going to... I always tell you at least what my truth is, that I will not—I will not hide anything, no matter what it is. That doesn't mean I haven't told little white lies, but I, you know.
0: Howard, in well, that, that today I feel is probably one of the biggest challenges that leaders, people in general, because there's such a fear of what people are going to think if you'd actually tell the truth, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about how you nurtured that in yourself? And was that something that you struggled with early on, or were you always just naturally able to have that kind of candor with people?
2: Well, I've always been pretty open, but I was president of the land development company in Seattle area for a number of years. And, and, um, we had to go through a layoff and I just become president and, and uh, I called my team together and I said, we got to decide who's going to get laid off. So this was before computers, this was IBM Selectric. So we were, my secretary was typing it all out as we went and the head of human resources took the document and went to make copies for the team. And it was a Friday afternoon about five o'clock and she left the original on the copier. And so, you know what happened? So by eight o'clock that night, my phone's ringing off the hook. Are we really going to have layoffs? Are this really the t- people are going to get off, right? And, you know, and it was like, I didn't even know what to say. So I called my team together the next morning and, and I said, what should we do? And we went around the table and pretty much everybody on the team, except for one person said, just deny it, just say it's we're looking at it, it's not real. And my secretary, her name was Lori Christmas. She just looked at me and she said, Howard, only the truth sounds like the truth. Only the truth sounds like the truth. And she was so right. And I decided that that's what we were gonna do. We were gonna tell the truth. So I called the meeting on the Monday, about 1500 people. And I said, here's what's going on. I don't know everybody what's gonna happen, but I will t- I promise you by the end of the week, everybody will know if they're gonna get laid off or not. And I think, you know, I'm in trouble. The P never trust me again. And a guy stood up and he said, Howard, thank you for telling us the truth. And I don't know if I'm gonna be one of the ones to get laid off, but I promise you that even if I am, I will help you and the company get through this. And one by one, everybody stood up and started clapping. Taught me a huge valuable lesson in life. And so only the truth sounds like the truth.
1: So That's where it came from. I was once asked the question, what's the difference between honesty and integrity? That's why I asked it to you. Uh, I'll tell you what my answer was, is that integrity is a core life principle. In today's world, people see honesty as a moment-in-time decision. I'll be honest in the morning, I'll be dishonest in the afternoon, and tomorrow I'll reconsider, right? Yeah,
2: no, yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe that. The truth is the truth no matter when the time is. And integrity is living up to what, you know, what you say you'll do. Yeah. no, No matter what, even if it costs you, you know, and, you know, and sometimes it does cost you.
0: In your in your career with Starbucks, was there was there one of those times? Was I mean, I guess it sounds like once you sort of set your principles, you stick to it. But was was there ever one of those times where you're just like, oh, this is going to cost us a lot, but we're going to go for it?
2: Yeah, and, uh, we decided to raise wages uh, by. Uh, we wanted to, we were at that time we were paying minimum wage. This was early late eighties, and it was about six dollars and something. I can't remember seven. I said, I want to be at least a dollar above minimum wage. So we ran all the numbers and I had my finance guy run them all. And we said, it's going to cost us one point. So we'll figure out how to make up for it with pricing differences. Well, I go on vacation and the 1st PL comes out with a wage increase in it. It wasn't one point. It was double that. Two points was significant. So a huge amount of money. And of course, Howard Schultz was mad at me, you know, and I came out back from my vacation. I said, Howard, don't worry. We'll figure it out. And I said, we're not going to back down from it. We're going to stay with what we said we were going to do. Cost us a lot, but we figured it out. Yeah, I mean, you're, it's, you're always being challenged by that, you know, because you make mistakes, you know, a lot in life, and you've got to write the mistakes. And you got to do it in a way that maintains your integrity. Otherwise, people never trust you again.
1: Absolutely so okay so So let's get back to the six p's yeah let's get back to the
2: first p is is purpose everything i do in life has to have a purpose bigger than myself it has to be more meaningful than me and it, it is the core of servant leadership actually and so purpose bigger than me the second p is passion if i'm going to have a purpose bigger than myself then i darn well be very passionate about it i better give it my all scream it from the highest mountaintops you know it's I'm coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and I'm telling everybody I'm committing to it, right? So I'm passionate about it. You know, can you imagine if Moses wouldn't have been passionate about it, yeah, he wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Right. He had enough trouble as it was. So then, um, then uh, the third P is persistence. You know, there are rocks in all of our and the rivers that we travel on, and we don't always know where those rocks are. Matter of fact, most of the time we don't and we're going to hit those rocks and, and we got to figure out how to bounce off of them to go over them to go around them to go under them whatever it takes because in life persistence pays you got to stick with it because it's not life is not easy right and when you're running a, a company running an organization you have a family it's not easy you got children it's not easy but you got to stay with your values you got to stay with what matters to you so persistence matters then the fourth p is patience you think that patience and persistence are the opposite of each other. They're not. Um, patience is, it, you know, you got, not everything comes in the time frame you want it. You know, in, in life, you know, sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes it takes less, but a lot of times it takes longer and you have to have patience with other people because they don't always come along at the pace that you'd like them to come along on. And you have, most of all, you have to have patience with yourself. It's hard to do sometimes, have patience with yourself, you know, when you're not getting what you think you should get done in the time you think you should get done, or you're not becoming all you want to be in the time frame that you want to be that person. You know, you make a mistake. And so you got to have patience with yourself. Then the fifth P is um, performance. Everything in life, you're measured about everything you do in life right? If you're married, you're getting measured all the time, right? Your, your significant other your wife may not say anything, your husband may not say anything, but they're measuring you, trust me. They're thinking about, hey, God damn it, he left those socks on the floor again with that damp toilet seat. Or, you know, can't she ever get to a meeting on time? You know, we're getting measured all the time. And performance matters. At work, it matters when you make a commitment to your boss, to your to your organization, to the people that you work with, performance matters. Performance matters with your kids. When you make a commitment to go to a soccer game or a basketball game or be at a meeting or a dance recital, you better be there or have a damn good explanation why you're not and don't do it again. So we're getting measured all the time. And we struggle with, perform- with being measured. We don't like it. Human beings don't like it. You know, but it's a fact of life and you can't escape it whether you like it or not. And, and so you got to live up to your commitments in life, whatever those happen to be. Uh, then the most important P is people. Everything you, I do in life is about people, is about serving other people. There's no job that anybody would have, no role anybody would play that isn't about serving others. That's why we're put on this earth. That's the only reason we're put on this earth is to serve others. And uh and in doing so we serve ourselves. So it's it's all about people at the end of the day. So those are my six Ps. That's how I try to live my life.
1: That's very cool. Can I tell you my five?
2: Yeah, I'd love to hear them.
1: Yeah, my five family principles are and they kind of inculcate a lot of what you said and a lot of your life purpose. So you wake up in the morning and but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. It's a sense of appreciation that immediately there's something bigger than you that's decided you're worthy of waking up in the morning and jumping out of bed. So it's that immediate sense of gratitude from the first thing you do when you open your eyes. The second one is family. And family is not just immediate family, it's extended family. It's your inner circle, could be your next door neighbors. Yeah. Is that you love, nurture, empower, and protect. Yeah. Our family. We may not love them. Yeah. We may not like them, but they're family. That's right. So that's the second
2: one. I'm making a note here while you're talking. Keep going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The third one is we run our own race. We don't let other people define our race. Yeah. So if, like my sons are athletes. I know if they come and say, Dad, we won the game, then I look at them and I say, and. Well, dad, I didn't have the best game I could have had. Or dad, we lost the game and I had a brilliant game. Always don't let other people define what success and failure is for you. You run your own race always. Others people, races might be materialism as a measure of success. and might not be yours. And that's absolutely fine. The next one is, is that we have to wake up in the morning and go to bed at night knowing that we want to be net contributors to our environment. Environment being society, family, partners, employees, whatever it may be. Before we start consuming, we have to contribute. Mm -hmm. We have to end the day, the week, the month, the year as a net contributor. The next one is that we are our own living world that at the end of the day, what we say, what we leave behind, none of it is going to count nearly as much as what we do and what we have done and will do. So we are a living will. And uh, those, those, those are, are good. Great. Well,
2: that's very similar in the concepts.
1: Yeah, yeah. very, very similar. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and passion, I love your concept of passion. Because it, it seems to me in today's world that if you're extremely passionate and it doesn't, your passion doesn't fit into somebody else's uh, block, yeah. passion is considered arrogance, obnoxious. If it does fit into somebody else's block, it's considered overselling. But really, yeah. passion is just being authentically yourself and excited yeah, it's about
2: life. what you're doing and willing That's willing to commit yeah. to it right? Yeah, Yeah.
1: absolutely. We were just in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, well, in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, we stayed at this resort. I was blown away by the people who were working there. Every one of them are passionate about their job. If you stopped and had a chat with them and were willing to listen, they would tell you how proud and happy they are to do their job and to be in the place that they are. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, take me to your leader. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, you know, that's what happens. If you do that really well enough, then people want to sign on to that. They make it their own. It's not yours anymore. It's theirs.
0: Yeah. How did you do that? Howard, can you tell us a little bit about that, how you did that with Starbucks, how you did that you know, with, um, with uh, Howard Schultz also? like, what, what was that process like for you guys as you were building that out and really creating that culture where people were so excited to work for you?
2: Well, it, you know, we, uh, we treated everybody with respect and dignity. You know, we, and in, in the real way, not just in words, but in actions, you know, everybody had health care. Part-time workers all had health care right from the very beginning. And so the CEO had the exact same health care as a part-time barista. Everybody got equity in the company. There were no company cars, there were no company boats, no company airplanes, no accounting fees or health club memberships for officers. We wanted to be able to walk down the hallway, look everybody in the face and say, we were all in this together. No BS, just that's the way that it is. And that's what we did. And so we lived, we lived by that, but that, that, those were kind of uh, foundational things. The things that really mattered were that, um, you know, we, we allowed everybody to vote you know, I have a quote that I, the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom, right? And that is exactly what I mean. We allowed people to and wanted people to participate in the journey with their ideas, with their opinions, and you could make a mistake and it'd be okay, didn't matter. So, and the other thing is we constantly reinforce the idea that it was about people, not about coffee. I coined this phrase when I first got there, I was trying to get people to believe in that because all entrepreneurial organizations, they start out selling a product or a service, and it, it's all about that. And I came in there saying, It's not about the coffee. You know, and I was being, that was, how could anybody possibly say that? Well, I did, and I kept reinforcing it. I said, it, We're not in the coffee business serving people, we're in the people business serving coffee. Slight plain words, but it's meaningful. It's funny, it's stuck for over 30 years that that those words and people still live by it and that's what makes a difference and you know something i probably have given i want thousands of speeches to starbucks people over the years i always talk about the fact that it's the people that make starbucks what it is period coffee's got to be good but a lot of people make good coffee so that's a matter of opinion right but at the end of the day you know it's the people that make it happen And so we just kept driving that home and you could not get fired for missing your numbers. Hardly at all at Starbucks. It it was really difficult, but if you screwed with the people, it was a quick way out the door. We'd coach you. We try to help you, but you would not survive. I don't care what your results were. And that's how it works. And you just keep repeating it over and over again. You get bored. Leaders get bored with the message long before the people do. You know, and you just got to stay with it. What, that's what brought you to the party. That's what will carry you through. And that's the, those are just core things to life, right? Don't screw with them. You know, people get bored. Leaders get bored. They think they got to do something else. You, know, you don't have to do something else.
1: How did you deal with... So there's a uh, company I was lucky enough to be a co-founder of. It is a regulated uh, financial institution. And after getting permission from the regulators, we created an employee share ownership scheme. Yeah. and we had this big meeting with all the employees to tell them the good news that they're all going to become owners yeah. and there was like this silence we couldn't work out why and eventually we figured out why because they didn't want that responsibility they mm-hmm. saw it as responsibility as liability many of them didn't want to be a owner. they didn't want to make that decision they didn't want to have the vote and that fascinated me as a businessman, as an entrepreneur. Did you ever come across that circumstance?
2: No, we didn't come across it in that way. We came across it was more people didn't understand. And we were, getting, you know, we were. They were shareholders, okay. So shareholders own the company, but they were. They became shareholders, and they they didn't understand what that meant. They got stock options, is what they got, and so their risk wasn't high. They couldn't lose. They just wouldn't exercise their options. But sometimes as we, as we matured, we were, starting, we were giving um, restricted stock, you know, which was actually, that was like cash. You just couldn't sell it right away. But before that, it was ISOs and uh, non-qualified stock options. So it was more, what does it mean? right? That, that Most of them had never owned a share of stock in their lives. Right. And so trying to explain what that meant and, and what it entitled to, but also what the responsibility was to that. Yeah, we didn't have any trouble like the way that you're talking about it, but we had the other side of it.
1: Yeah. So because of the people concept is, I was always intrigued why Starbucks never adopted the franchise model. Yeah. Is, is that because of it, people?
2: Yeah, it wasn't, uh, Howard, it wasn't Howard Schultz's personality. Okay. He, he liked control and, you know, in a franchise model, you, you lose a lot of control and uh, there's benefits to it because you use somebody else's cash, but that was not our problem. So we had plenty of cash and the cash flow was good. But, and we did do some licensing, a lot of licensing. When I started Starbucks International, those were all through joint venture uh, partnerships. So there were joint ventures and we licensed to the joint venture. So we own part of the joint venture. So we did it that way. And we did some um, uh, licensing in airports and in grocery stores. But no individual, I think we have a couple uh, individual uh, franchises, but that's all. And it uh, worked well for us, you know. It, um, you know, it, it just was the right way to do it. And our cash flow was so good, you know, particularly as we got, it go, got going, we didn't need other people's money.
0: H- Howard, I wanted to ask, cause you brought up that, um, and, and I I've, I think I've read at least, I don't know if Howard Schultz told two or three books, I've read it for sure too. Um, but but you mentioned that he, he, he had that desire to control and, and wanting to create you know a very clear vision for what he wanted from the company, what he wanted from the people. You see that mission that was carried through and then he had to come back and, and sort of really work on it a second time. What is it like for you as you yourself have such clear, um, it doesn't sound like in any way that you guys were seeing things differently, but as, as you work with someone who's very, um, has a set perspective, what are some tips or strategies that you've used to both hear yourself be heard and then also create a platform for someone else to have that, that ability to steward in their direction?
2: Well, Howard and I had a lot of conflicts. I mean, we had blowouts. You know, here's this guy from Canarsie, New York, outside of Brooklyn, right, street? I mean, that's yeah, a tough place to live, right? It's, uh, and I, here I am from soft and gentle Seattle. But I was tough, I was tough in a different way. I, you know, I was raised, I was, a I was a third born. My sister and brother were both at least 10 years older. My sister was 13 years older. I was the baby of the family. My father was 15 was born. I could do no wrong. You know what I mean? I was just loved, you know? So here's that coming together, right? And he, he was not, I wouldn't call it the beginning. He cared a lot about people, right? But he could be hard on people too. I was not that way. I was, I used to tell him Howard, you be the good guy, I'll be the bad guy. Because I had a much different style than he did. You know, He could go into a store and just decimate a store, right? And they used to call him the evil eye when he was coming into the store. And I used to tell him, Howard, you find something that's wrong, call me, I don't care what time of night, I'll take care of it. So we had those kinds of conflicts and we had other conflicts too along the way. But he gave me a lot of room and I never look at, it, yeah, you know, I've said this before, it was Howard's company, there's no question about it, but it was as much mine as it was his. I cared as much, I didn't need a job, I didn't want a job. You know, I was 44 when I got there, I knew who I was and what I was about, you know, and um, so and I had a way that I wanted a company to be led, and I drove that, I wasn't shy about it, and um, and he he put up with me, and and uh, you know, we we um. You know, I've apologized a number of times and he's apologized a number of times. But we had a third leg to the stool, a guy named Warren Smith. And he was the guy in the middle. And everyone, when Howard and I were at each other's throats, he'd step between us and say, okay, boys, calm down. You know, so it was a great team. You could not, I mean, you could not have uh, uh, planned it. You know, I mean, we, we were like ba- those two guys were basketball players. I wasn't, but wasn't one. But, but, you know, it was like a basketball team always knowing where the other player is on the floor. We always did. And we always stuck up for each other. Once we'd made a decision publicly, there was no going back. We went, we stayed with it unless something, we made a mistake. But, you know, we had our, a lot of conflicts. and But I think it's important. You know, and I'm I'm emotional guy, really emotional, you know, and so is Howard. And, you know, it could be get screaming matches, you know, and people back away, you know. But, you know, and I was one of the few people that could get away probably with what I got away with. I don't think, it, you know, it, it, it couldn't happen now if he was still there, but it did then, so.
1: What, what do you think about, I'll give you a quick example. There's a good friend of mine. He's a brilliant entrepreneur, not even 35 years old, who uh, Jacob knows as well. And he's built up a company in the ad tech uh, media space, really arguably one of the fastest growing companies yeah. very very successful there's about 400 employees and when this whole cancel culture work culture started he was forced to um, make a statement he, his employees wanted him to make a statement where he stood on that so he asked his chief operating officer to run some numbers for him and the numbers came back and said that he but just under 60% of the employees are minorities
2: yeah and percent did you say
1: yeah just under 60 percent. And that uh, more than the majority of executives are females. Yeah. But whoa, if anybody's being harassed or uh, (laughs) just in my company, it's a white male. So he goes to the executive team and he said, why do I have to make a statement? When I have numbers like that, clearly I love my statement. Why do I have to tell my people what's so clearly obvious in my company by actual conduct and really bothered him? In the end, you know, he, he actually gave and he says one of the few times in his life he's given in to something he really didn't believe he, need to be said. But I was wondering how you would tell executives today that are scared of their own shadow. you got the public opinion, you know, one tweet or one whatever, and then you, you destroy destroyed. You have um, regulators, uh, politicians, whatever it is, telling you how to do your job. When you might, in actual fact, just be a phenomenal CEO as it is. But everyone, so the public judges, you by a minute by minute minute basis. What kind of advice would you give to um, CEOs like that?
2: You know, I think that you gotta be willing to be vulnerable, right? You can't be afraid of exposing yourself, exposing your weaknesses, exposing, talking about your strengths. I don't, you know, I used to, Howard Schultz used to say to me, you know, well, we have to have, he, he was always a believer in, in public PR, getting communicate. I was, my mother used to, was a Jewish mother used to say to me, Howard, keep your head down, do your work, right? And so I was kind of pushed back against, so I said, we shouldn't have to tell people what all the good things we're doing. But I learned a valuable lesson that you got to be willing to share those things too, because people don't always know. And anyway, they want to hear it. They want to hear about why, why you do what you do. He had 60%. Why did he have 60%? They want to hear that. Right, so that, you don't have to brag about it. It's not, and, and I just think that you can't be afraid. I think that you know, look, um, people want to hear from their leaders about what they think and why they think it. You know, and they want to see how that uh, that matches up to the actions in the organization, mm-hmm. and you know, and you know, those things reinforce it. You know, communicating about it reinforces it. So I think you can be—you can't be thin-skinned about that. Look, I was on the board of a bank. I'd never been on the board of a bank before. It was one that gotten gotten in trouble, and the feds came in, and and some venture money came in, bailed it out, and I came on the board at that time. I had never experienced anything like regulations like that, right? I mean, the regulators were on our backs. I mean, I remember the first meeting with the regulars when after I joined the board. And I'm listening to them and I mean, they talk to us like we were two-year-olds. And I you know, I just sit there and listen. I had my little red book that had, had all the acronyms in it because she, banking business, they got, you know, acronym for everything, right? There was a book about that thick. And I had to, they're talking and I had to look through what do they mean by ABC? What do they mean by D-E-F, you know? And I'm listening to them talk and I was blown away by it. But, you know, but if you push back, you're dead me. So you had to just let go. Okay, we, you know, our bank screwed up. We're, in the, we're, you know, the feds own part of us. As long as they own part of us, then we're gonna to have to take some of that. And I think you just let it go. You don't worry about it. You, you get too much in your head. Hey, don't they know how good I am? Don't they see all the good things I'm doing? I mean, it used to make me mad at Starbucks too when there'd be a newspaper article or, or something was going on, you know? I'd say, can't you see everything the go the good we're doing, you know, the unions would make a comment or something, you know, and, uh, but it's the way that it is. And you get used to it after a while and you kind of let it go and you got to learn to let it go. It's not about you. And I, I, I
0: wanted to just dig in with that a little bit more if you could tell, tell us, letting go is probably one of the hardest things that people will be, that and telling the truth, what are some strategies or in, in your own life or when you're, when you're mentoring others that you use to help people let go? Like, what, what, what are they afraid of? What are some, some methodologies that you've used? Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Well, I'm a quote guy. So in my office, I probably had 200 quotes on my walls, all framed, you know? I spent thousands of dollars on the fringe, you know? But every quote was meaningful to me. You know, you're looking at a, talking to a guy that barely got out of high school. I had two years of community college. So I, I you know, I don't have an MBA or anything. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but but I learned things on the street. And quotes would come by in front of my face just when I need them. I don't know why that was, but they were always there. Just like only the truth sound like truth. That came when I needed it. And I had a couple of quotes that really helped me with that and yeah, would help people. You know, one, there are no stressful situations, only stressful responses. And we can choose our response. We not be able to choose the situation, but we can choose our response to the situation. So that's important. The other thing, the other quote that I always loved and was always a struggle at certain times, okay, think like a person of action, act like a person of thought. That's a good one. And probably my favorite one is you can't win a negotiation like you can't win a marriage. Okay.
0: So I I had quotes. Every time I was
2: in trouble, I would go to those little reminders. What was the other one? Think like a person of action. Act like a person of thought.
1: thought. (laughs) That's nice. Um,
0: So the idea of being able to just sort of show, I, I think that on the other side, and it's it's an interesting, an interesting um, th- a lot of times people feel like if they do let go and if they don't hang on, then what's going to be sacrificed is performance or upward mobility. And I think that that's also something that, you know, again, it's, it's like, oh, it's easy for you to say. And obviously no one sees that you had to actually build up to that, to that place. But what kind of reassurance can you give someone who is Actively trying to build themselves, build their company, whatever it might be, build their families, whatever level they're operating
2: on. You've got to turn your fear into faith. Oh, you can't that. Come from fear, right? I always tell people you should be able, you should be willing to bet your job every day by the actions you take. If you truly believe them and they are your part of your core value, you got to be willing to do that. If you come from fear, like oh my god, I'm going to lose my job if I do that. You're never going to get, you're going to have a very tough life. And, uh, you know, doesn't mean you're always going to be right. I was fired. I've been fired before by living up to something that I believed. A guy named Erwin Greenwald. He was a Jewish guy in LA. And I was in the furniture business at that time working for a division of Federated department stores. And Erwin was a nice, it was a good guy. He was about six foot four, you know, every morning he'd come into the office and he'd look at me and say, hiya dummy, how you doing? <laughs> I had never heard words like that, nobody ever said that to me. One day it just pissed me off so much, excuse my language. I just, I got up in front of Erwin, you know, I'm only about 5'10", so he's a towering above it. And I took my finger and I pointed up at him and said, Erwin, don't you ever effing say that to me again. <laughs> Three weeks later I was fired, you know. So you pay a price for it, but, but so what? I I, I could always, always believe that I could put food on the table. If I had to, and I could figure it out, if I had to go work three jobs, I could do it, you know? The interesting
1: thing is if I'm Owen, I know why I fired you. In my head, it says he finally has got the courage to be a CEO himself. So I'm gonna do him justice. (laughs) I can go and do it. i am tell you, I I really wanted with the Swiss group, financial group, this is a long, long time ago. And they flew me to Switzerland. and I met this psychologist. I met everybody. I met this CEO and I desperately won this job and they didn't give it to me. And I, I called Mike and said, how's that possible? They said, we don't want to train our next competitor. Mike, you're a guy who got to do it on your own. And we're doing you the biggest favor possible. And that's what
2: Irwin did for you. Yeah, well, that's true. In a sense, he did, yeah. See, I want to train my next competitor. You know, there is a great book called Living, Loving, and Learning by a man named Leo Vascoia. And in the book, he, there's a, my, one of my favorite quotes. He's, he, he said, I want to be, a, I, I'm a master bridge builder. And I build bridges for my people to cross. I gently help them across. And then I gently break the bridge behind them. That's
1: beautiful. That and beautiful.
2: It, it, it is so true. You know, we want to help people in their journey right? We want to help people be all they can be, whatever that happens to be. If they become one of your biggest competitors, good. You know, whatever it happens to be, but you help them along the way.
1: I have your next book, Howard.
2: What?
1: And I want to be part of writing the introduction. The book's (laughs) called Howard's Favorite 200 Quotes.
2: Yeah. I'd love to see what they are. Yeah, put them all out there. I should do that, put all those together. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's got to be more, you know, it's not only the quote, it's the meaning behind it, you know, yeah. what did it mean to me and why? One of my favorite quotes is compassionate emptiness. So it came along when I needed it. So I don't know if the two of you are married or you have kids or whatever, but so, So you know, my wife would come home, right? And she'd come home after day work. She's an oncology social worker. So she's always dealing with death or dying. Yeah, you know, she'd start talking. I always wanted to help her solve her problems. And God, it used to make her mad. I could never, why? And finally, she said, just listen to me. I don't want you to solve my problem. And my kids were doing the same thing. And along came, I was reading this book and in it, where there's two word quote, compassionate and emptiness, which basically means being compassionate about what's, what you're being told, you know, but empty of opinion. And from that point on, every time I had this desire to give a solution, I would say compassion and emptiness to myself and shut up, you know?
1: It's a big challenge for us men, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's right. It's a huge challenge for men. You know, we're problem solvers. We're the, we're hunters, you know, you know, and, uh, yeah, but, but the truth of the matter is that's what our people want. I was, um probably about 27 when I that first lesson came about that. A young woman who reported me came into my office, sat across the table the desk from me, and she started bawling, crying, tears coming out of me, and just bawling. And I got up out of my chair and I went around, I grabbed my Kleenex and I gave her some Kleenex and I put my arm I her and said, don't, don't worry, it'll be okay. She about ripped my head off. <laughs> It was when I first learned that women, sometimes their anger comes out differently than men's. Where men will be angered, pound the table. Sometimes a woman will cry. Now that's not universal because I've seen men cry out of anger too and women pound the table. But it was a great lesson. Don't judge how that person is feeling. Ask them a question before you, you say, hey, honey, it'll be okay. Say, you know, like what's happening? What's going on? Why are you feeling the way you're feeling? What can I do to help you? You know? and. Ask before you judge or take an action. I,
0: I, I, I know I wanna be very respectful of the time. I have, I have one question. I know Mike probably has one more after that, but out of, out of curiosity, you know, when you look at where the world is sort of heading in terms of business practice, and I know that you've been so um, instrumental with this idea of, of conscientious capitalism and really trying to help make the world a better place while people make, make more money and build bigger companies do you feel like the world is getting the message? Or do you feel like it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a challenge? What do you, in terms of like this idea that you're, you're so, uh, that you embody, frankly, um, where is that? Is that picking up steam, traction? What, like what's, what's, your, what's your thoughts about that?
2: Uh, it's interesting because, you know, before this last four years, uh, and, with, and with what happened in our politics, I would have said we we're gaining more stream. but I think that the existing president has single-handedly destroyed the. I mean, within a group of people, the idea of servant leadership, and even though um, the, um, uh, 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 the Christian right, you know, uh, talks about a lot and attaches to the idea of servant leadership, I don't understand how they can worship this kind of leadership. This is as far away you can get from servant leadership as there is. Now, having said that. Uh, I see more and more companies and organizations starting to practice it. And I think one good, one of the great things about the internet is you're exposed, right? Look what happened at, at Uber. The guy that started that company, right, he got forced out because of who he was and what he said and what he did to his people and what how he acted in the organization. The board finally said, you can't run this organization. Look at what happened at Wells Fargo when they were pushing their people to sell things just to raise level, right? They couldn't, it got out. And so it forced people to change. The same thing happened with Volkswagen, you know, with the uh, uh, the uh, mileage, diesel fuel and stuff like that and mileage or whatever it was. And you can't hide anymore. You cannot hide, it gets out. So more and more people and more and more leaders I think are asking the question, what is it like to leave? And we have lots of great examples. John Mackey, Whole Foods. Uh, Chip Kendall at, uh, uh, um, at Container Store. Um, Jeff Brotman and Jim Senegal at Costco. Uh, Nordstrom's at Nordstrom's. Uh, uh, I mean, I can go on and on with, with organizations that are servant-led, and you're seeing more of it. And I, my, I believe that it will continue to rise because it's how people want to be treated.
0: And it sounds like the more that, that the internet allows sort of a democratization of, of what happens, the more that people are gonna be incentivized to, to perform at a place that, that people are gonna be at least aware of their, of their actions. They're gonna think twice is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, we're, you know, we don't live our Jewish values because we think we're gonna get rich, do we? Hopefully, we live hopefully, our Jewish- that's, hopefully not. No, hopefully not. We live our Jewish values because it's how we wanna live our lives. I live my values not because it's going to get me a bigger house or a bigger, faster car, whatever it happens to be. Those things may happen or may not happen. But I live them because that keeps me at peace with myself. I want to have a fulfilling life. I want to experience all that life has. It's goodness, it's badness, it's disappointments, it's pain, it's sorrow, it's happiness, it's joy, it's success, it's failures. Because that makes me a better human being and able to help people and help myself more. You know, and so I, say, you know, I just think that that's where we are. So serial leadership isn't about getting rich, right? But on the other hand, there's no inherent conflict between taking care of your people and making money.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to having this conversation again in two years because my sense, and I'm a pretty pragmatic, <coughs> pragmatic guy and I have a very diverse group of uh, partners, friends, etc. cetera. I think the cancel culture is gonna create a tremendously and servant leadership because the whole thing about any form, you said it right in the beginning, is consistent authenticity. Yeah. It doesn't mean that for a certain group, you, you, you're nicer, you're more effective, you're more generous and for another group, you shut them up because it's not the opinion of the day. And I think that the next two years is gonna be a very challenging two years. To be able to be completely consistent and fair right across the diverse span of opinions and groups in this world.
2: It's. I think it's a. I think the cancel culture is just the times. It's. Uh, uh, it's a. Re, it's part of it. Is it is is a reaction uh, to the racism, to the anti-Semitism that we have in this country, and some, at some level, the des- I don't think it comes from the desire to do bad. I think it comes from an From sometimes an uninformed, uninformed desire to do good, and 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 so if if look at I push back when we get to the uh, pronouns, you know I say really, you you want me to remember everybody's pronoun, and I can't. So you know I got used to well, what do you go by, you know, and and how do you because you know it 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 lets it go, then it's over. You know, and if I asked them 10 times, well, what do you go by? I'm sorry, I can't remember. You know, eventually people forgive you. But I, I agree, it's it's problematic. Look, it's it's a youthful thing right now. And you got to give room for this kind of stuff, my belief is. Look, when I first started at Starbucks, we wouldn't allow anybody to have tattoos. Couldn't have a tattoo. And and you you could you had if you wore an earring, you had to have an earring in both ears.
0: That is not the modern barista for 80 I've never been to a coffee place where you don't have tattoos.
2: Yeah, okay, so that changed, didn't it? And all, we always, old people, us old kids, we always push back against that stuff, but it it finds its equilibrium, right? It finds its equilibrium and and uh, it, it's problematic and it's perfectly problematic for, you know, for, uh, it, as people sit in judgment. And that's, whenever I hear too much cancel culture, I, I, I just say, are you judging me?
0: <laughs>
2: you know, are you judging me? Well, you, know, you it, know me that well to judge me? You know, and I want to have the conversation and it changes the discourse.
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're optimistic and sanguine about it. I'm a little bit more cynical at this stage. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I have kids at college and all that, and I, and I see the environment there. <laughs> It's terrible unless you uh, follow into a certain stream. And I think that's so against the dream of the world and democratization. You know, it's uh, anyway, we'll see where it all goes. And, we'll see uh, where it
2: all goes. and it, you know, things, as my mother used to say to me all the time Howard, this too shall pass. Yeah. And, well, and it is true.
1: King, King David, you know, one of the most uh, relevant and significantly important kings in the Jewish history, he used to wear a ring. And on the ring, it used to say, Gamze or there. And what that means when people used to come asking for advice, things are good, things are bad, you would point to the ring, Gamze or there. Even this will change.
2: Yeah, right. Well, that, I did not know that story. Yeah. That's a great story. After to yeah. King David's ring. Yeah.
0: Mike, okay. do you want to ask, um, just on, on my behalf, Howard, I, I so enjoyed this time with you. Mike, did you want to ask Howard the, uh, the final question for this, uh, for this interview?
1: Well, you know, Howard. I think that the final question has already been answered because you spoke about, you know, that these are cycles. You sanguine about that, which is beautiful. So, I mean, this time I'm going to let you, wrap up. Uh, you asked the final question.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I guess in your in your vast experience of clearly many different industries and having lived many years and just interacted with a lot of leaders. When, when you think about your own Jewish heritage, what do you feel like was the most, I guess you could say, tra- either transformation or fundamental piece of it that sort of shaped your worldview?
2: You know, it, it was the whole of it. It was, uh, I was, uh, my father was Sephardic, my mother was Ashkenazi, and they got married at a time when Sephardics and Ashkenazi didn't get married. And it was the family. It was coming and going to my grandmother's, and, and uh, uh, um, what do they call the made with meat inside the little like. Uh, Breccas? Not, oh, breca Sephardic. Yeah, yeah I, love, I love those too. That uh, we put in the
1: soup, you know. Canadian, Berogan, blintzes, blintzes. Right.
2: And, and I, my, I used to go to my grandmother's house, and the table before the Sabbath was filled right, all handmade and they would go into the soup and you could hardly wait to, to taste that, you know. And then probably one of the most transformative was times when I got, when I was confirmed at my synagogue, right, is when you graduate high school basically. And we had a great rabbi, Rabbi Levine, and I was raised in a Reform synagogue. It was where my parents kind of came together. My mother was Orthodox, my dad was typical Bulgarian, almost no nothing, you know, and, uh, and, I had this long conversation with Rabbi. I said, "I don't get this super God thing, you know." And of course, that's it's sixteen. You know, you're questioning. And he said, "Don't worry about it, Howard. It's God is within you. You don't you don't have to look someplace else. God is within you, and it, it comes out of you. And you'll either you'll find your way. You don't have to think about this super being to be a good Jew. You need to live." your values, good values to be a good Jew. And if you do that well, everything will be fine with you. And I'll never forget that conversation as long as I live. Because it kind of stunned me actually. I thought, man, I'm going to get blasted for saying what I thought, you know? Yeah, Rabbi Levine, great guy. Unbelievable.
0: Howard, right. you know that
1: Jacob's a rabbi as well? He was a rabbi to my teenage boys.
2: Oh, yeah?
0: I was, yeah, that's great. That's you a are?
2: Man. You are a, a, that's right, a I rabbi? I am. Yes. So, Orthodox uh, oh, I'll be darn.
0: Yeah. Um, usually my, my, uh, I, I, dress a little bit more casual than, than the, than the average rabbi, but, uh, that's the, that's the West coast in a, me. Are you in a synagogue there? Um, I, I run an organization here called H Minnesota. Um, oh, okay. and yeah, so, so, um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's me, but I, 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 the the kind of where, where religion and leadership and values all kiss are the, uh, is, is, is what, what really is, is, is sort of my passion. So what you said resonates very, very deeply to, uh, to me. And I I appreciate that. Um, Howard, I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the time that you spent. Um, Your website is howardbihar.com. You have two wonderful books. You speak all over the place. Um, Anything else that you'd like to tell our viewers before we finish
2: today? No, just live a good life, you know, live a fulfilling life. Yes.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. For more information or how to reach us, please follow us on social and reach out to jrup at h.edu.